other end. Good morning. So with your permission, I would like to commence my homily. I feel like I've had three names for my homily. So my homily, also known as my sermon, also known as me talking. Um, today, uh, it's my homilies on Matthew, but I want to begin by reading the text of 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 again. And although it might seem a little unconventional, I believe that uh, as we explore Matthew's retelling of the parable The words spoken by Paul should be foremost on our mind um, because it does provide a significant context for the work of those who who are called. Uh, Keep in mind, this is the uh, ESV, or the EV, the Eric version translation. Um, I try to make it a little bit more palatable. So here, according to Paul, do not, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only some Receive the prize. So run in such a way as to obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it for an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't run, I don't box as one beating against the air. I do so. I discipline my body and I try to keep it under control lest after I preach the words of God, someone should try to disqualify me. Now back on to Matthew. So as you listen, as you listen to the retelling of the parable in today's gospel, I want to ask a couple questions. How did you all perceive the vineyard owner? Was he kind? Was he generous? Was he mean? Was he unfair? Well, some might argue that the two groups, or the various groups of uh, hired hands, probably had a pretty drastically dissimilar opinion about this man. Those that were hired earlier in the day, the ones, you know, the ones who emphasized that uh, they had to suffer by bearing the burden of the heat and the scorching sun, well, they likely had an unfavorable, unfavorable view of the owner. Well, on the other hand, the group who has labored for a shorter period were like, Quote the kids, that was lit. (laughs) They had a shorter period. Sorry, kids. Sorry. Probably had held the uh, the landowner in a higher regard. I would argue it's a matter of perspective. But let me ask you this. You personally, what emotions stirred within you? Now, almost everyone in this room is American by birth or choice, I assume. And we grew up in a Western culture. And as such, we have a very unique view on things. So let me ask you, in the American context, was the ruler just? Was he equitable? Should the compensation be uniform for all workers? Should the owner have adjusted the wages as the day advanced? If you lean towards the left, did, did, he, did you consider the idea that the workers should have unionized and demanded fair pay? If you lean towards the right, did you perhaps think that the businessman made a mistake and that he should have been more prudent in the management of his overhead costs? And however, these inquiries, though relevant, they miss entirely the central theme. For me, the essence of this story, 
lies in the identity and the intent of not the workers, but the landowner. And how he presents himself to us. You see, the only virtue that he ascribed to himself in this story is the virtue of generosity. Think about it. He, the owner, who has the means, provides meaningful work and compensation to each worker with a fair wage. He has the means and powers to do that which he wishes, and he wishes instead to bless people. He wishes to reward each man, not for their efforts or their means of production, but their willingness to go into his field, to work in his vineyard for the betterment of his harvest. And Christ, through this passage, calls us to adopt a similar perspective when we look at the Father. Regardless of when we came to a faith, or when we entered the church, I hate to break the news to you, I've been guilty of it. Oh, they're new Christians, they'll catch on, right? They don't deserve to sit at the front, or that's my pew, I've been here longer. I should have a better place at the table because I've been a Christian longer, right? Regardless of when we came to faith, if you entered the church as a child, a young adult, or later in life, I would argue even those who are coming to faith right now, this very minute around the world, the Father stands ready to provide us with everything we need, irrespective of the stage of our faith and our growth in grace. He compensates us all equally. And yet, if we are not careful, we may fail to understand that while we are doing the work He has set before us, we are laborers toiling in His field, Cultivating the fruits of his field. All the while he is working in us. And if we are not careful, the absurd murmurings of inequity become as coals heaped upon our own heads. Serving as an indictment regarding our desires and our demands to be set apart in this place. A place that calls the last to be first, not the first to be last. You see, the faith that saved you 30 years ago is no more powerful. It should be different. Don't take that away. It should look different, and that's what St. Paul is talking about. But the faith that you had 30 years ago is no more powerful than the faith that is saving someone today. The faith that caused you to labor in the sun, sometimes at great costs to you and your family, is no more valuable than the faith that will this day be received into the heart of a new believer. The murmurings of these workers who perceived an injustice should have been praises sung on the account of the landowner who gave to each what he deemed fair. As if to say that those who come after us are not entitled to the same reward of forgiveness, that they have to do extra to earn it because ours is older and better. No, it is a small mind that limits the great wealth of our Lord. He gave out of abundance and was greeted with admonishment. Yet he is kind, generous, and gives out of mercy. Our joy should not diminish when another is forgiven. Instead, I think scripture says all of heaven actually starts to rejoice. It's a pretty good example to strive for. 
Our joy should not diminish. Instead, we should see that he gives regardless of status. We should be reminded that we were once laboring but an hour in his field. And yet, he paid us with everything he had. St. Augustine rightly identifies hubris, pride, as a significant flaw in humans. If you read it, he actually coins pride as the linchpin of the seven deadly sins. This pride involves constructing a deceptive narrative about our intrinsic goodness, our virtue, leading us to an entitled mentality that is offensive to God and humanity. This attitude becomes a breeding ground for vice. As we convince ourselves that personal pleasures equate to goodness and pain must somehow be evil, that we don't deserve because we've been here for so long. Hate to break it to you, but this hubris is reminiscent of Satan's sin. It leads to morally reprehensible action and veers away from God. Our sinful tendencies lead us to seek service for ourselves rather than to extend it. And from our earliest days, we perceive the world as revolving around us. As infants, and as I jokingly quoted earlier this morning, possibly teenagers. (laughs) Love you guys. (laughs) We expect our parents to cater to our every need. Expressing discontent if our desires are not properly fulfilled. Despite Growing and gaining independence, the inclination is still to be served. Whether at home desiring attention or in the workplace seeking more authority, that next promotion or or getting your subordinates to comply. These proclivities are indicative of a sinful nature. A desire for continuous recognition and celebration. Which reveals an inclination towards pride. And selfishness in the eyes of God. Haven't we at some point fallen into the snares of these sins? The self-centered perspective through which we view others warrants God's judgment for our arrogance. This, this is where I invoke the Corinthians passage. Beloved in Christ, true greatness lies in emulating Christ's love and dedicating each and every day to serving in his field and loving others. We are not to cast judgment or profess a a Christian superiority. Just as the landowner gives out of abundance, we are called to be selfless, to make sacrifice without expecting anything in return during our earthly journey. This, according to God's perspective, constitutes true greatness. And our reading from Corinthians illuminates the paradox of the Father's generosity. Because the Father has given generously, we must strive to give our best for Him. The more you give, the more you feel His life being lived in you. Just as the athlete strives every day to better their body for their sport... We Christians must strive to better ourselves for employment in his service, irregardless of what the pay is, because we've already been paid sufficient. 
True spiritual training involves more than just reading Jesus' proclamations of blessed are the poor and, and admiring the eloquence of his words. No, it requires us encompassing those words and intentionally choosing to align our lives with the impoverished. It goes beyond merely listening to the account of Jesus touching a leper and finding it sweet that our Lord would do such. No, it entails allowing the narrative to permeate our being, to prompt us to contemplate individuals who we should reach out to. Barriers we must dismantle and those whom we might bring healing to. So as Paul exhorts, we must run the race, not for perishable rewards, but in the service to the generous landowner. A landowner who rewards us with gifts he believes we deserve. And thank God for that. It is the gifts he believes we deserve and not the ones we actually deserve. So run the weight, run the race well. Remain disciplined in your study of Scripture. Pray without ceasing. Love God with everything you have and be a blessing to his world. Live a life worthy of the price that has already been paid by the landowner and always rejoice in the salvation of others. And brothers and sisters, murmur not. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.